This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 20, and I'm reading from verse 20 to 28. That's Matthew 20, 20 to 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favour of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. If you're new to St. Paul's, my name is Richard. I'm, I'm part of the team here at the church. It's lovely to be able to speak to you just for a few, min- a few minutes. Uh, today. Um, a number of years ago, I used to work primarily with young people, and um, I had, uh, the, we'll call it the pleasure of going into a local secondary school in, in Tunbridge Wells and supporting um, their Christian union. And um, I probably did that for about seven years, and uh, for the first four years, it was agony. Every single week, I just used to dread it. It was awful. The, the guys were very kind of like, apathetic and lethargic, and all they ever wanted to do was watch The Simpsons. And I was just like, oh, man, this is such hard work. And then something happened. One summer, the Lord just seemed to meet with, with three of these boys. And um, I went... I went in in September, we had a meeting with them to plan what we were going to do over the course of um, the term, and I was expecting the normal kind of stuff, let's just watch The Simpsons, let's just play on the PlayStation, and, um, and I was absolutely staggered, because something had happened to these boys, they were just suddenly full of life, and full of, uh, full of God, and so we talked about what we might do this um, over the course of the term, they had loads and loads of ideas, which was amazing, but one of their ideas... Uh, was that they said, why don't, we, um, why don't we start finding ways of serving the school? I was like, okay, cool, let's, let's think about how we might do that. So we came up with a plan that every single Friday lunchtime, uh, we would go and stand in the corner of the playground, and um, uh, myself and, and these guys from the Christian Union, about, there's about 12 of us or however many there were, we would stand in the corner of the playground and we would wash football boots for the whole of lunchtime. And, uh, 
And, and, and you can imagine what that was like in this all-boys school, this, these little guys just standing in the corner playing with some buckets of water and sponges and brushes and this kind of thing. And there was just this massive queue of guys who had done football or rugby that week. And they all just, they queued up and they brought us their football boots. And every Friday we just scrubbed and washed boots. And at the end of it, we'd put them all back, hopefully with the right, you know, in the right pairs and, and put a little lolly in, in their boots as well. And you can imagine the conversations that we had in the corner of that playground. As people going, why on earth are you doing this? What is going on? Why are you, why are you standing here washing boots on your Friday lunchtime? And we did that week in and week out. They did that week in and week out. And uh, I ended up having a meeting with the headmaster uh, of the school. We were talking about some, uh, a couple of different things. And the headmaster in the conversation, he said to me, he said, those boys have transformed this school. Those boys have transformed this school. Now, they didn't just wash football boots. They did do some other things as well. But that's what he said to me. And I sort of sat there and I thought, how is it that, that in a school of 1,500 boys, young men, that values academic achievement and sporting success almost above everything else, how is it that 10 little guys standing in the corner of the school playground washing football boots could transform the school? How is it that the headmaster would say, those boys have transformed the school. And they weren't the most academic. I mean, they were bright, um, you know, but they weren't like the brightest and they certainly weren't the most athletic. And yet the headmaster said, those boys have transformed this school. And it always amazed me then when it came to things like uh, year seven open day, when they're looking at all the prospective new students and, and, and the new sixth form coming in, it was actually the boys from the Christian Union that were invited to get up on the stage and to speak along with the head boy and the captain of the football team. I thought, isn't that incredible that these guys have just poured themselves out to serve their school, to serve their teachers, to serve their classmates. And actually the head teacher says they've transformed the school and he puts them on the stage to speak to the prospective parents that are coming in. You know, in this passage that was read to us, Jesus is kind of provoked, isn't he, by James and John's question to talk about the path to greatness in the kingdom of God. And so I thought I'd have a quick look on Amazon uh, and see what is the world saying about the path to greatness. And you can imagine that there are a lot of books out there promising greatness or success. There was a book that said uh, 10 Easy Steps to Success. That was one of the Amazon bestsellers. There was another one that said um, 64, something like 64 things that successful people do. And that terrified me because if Julie gives me two important things to remember in a day... I'm, I start sweating, you know, I'm just thinking, I, I suddenly feel really anxious for the whole day, cause, and I can't remember either of them, really. So I just thought, what chance is there of me remembering 64 things? This is dreadful. And then I sort of imagined Jesus kind of pitching his book, uh, you know, to, to the editor, saying, I've got this great book, it's about um, becoming great. He said, uh, and the editor having a conversation with him, saying, Jesus, are you really sure about these chapter titles? Are you really sure that it's a good idea to have a chapter title that says, the meek shall inherit the earth? Are you really sure, Jesus, that the chap- you, you want a chapter in there saying the first will be last and the last will be first? Are you sure, Jesus, that you want a title that says blessed are the poor? Imagine Jesus' pitch not going great with the editor as he writes a book on becoming great. And yet it seems to me that the call to follow Jesus, it isn't a call to greatness or success, it's a call to living a radically transformed life. 
a life that's lived by completely different values, by completely different standards, completely different rules to that which most of the world live by. And I guess in this passage, some of those things are communicated through this encounter between James, John and Jesus. So let me pray and then let's have a look at this passage. So Lord, I want to thank you for your word. And Lord, I want to pray that this morning you would speak to us through your word and by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in your name. Amen. The first thing that I want to say is this. Um, The throne is already yours. The throne is already yours. There's a number of things that we could sort of like critique, couldn't we, about James and John's question or request. Um, It's such a human question, isn't it, that they ask. It's a question that I guess, if we're honest, we could all imagine ourselves asking. We could question the timing of it. Jesus has just predicted his own death for the third time. And they trouble Jesus with this question about their own personal gain. We could question their motives. I mean, it's a worldly question, isn't it? It's a very human question. It's a request for status. It's a request for power. It's a request for importance. We could critique the fact that it's bound to cause some disunity. How are the other disciples going to respond when they find out about the question that James and John have asked? All of those things would be fair. But this morning I want to just focus on something else. And it's the simple fact that James and John already have a throne. They already have a throne. In Matthew chapter 19, the preceding chapter, and verse 28, Jesus says this. He says, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones. James and John, they already have a throne. It seems to me that their question comes not out of the abundance of what Jesus has promised, but it comes out of a sense of insecurity and lack. James and John already have a throne. One of the passages that's really kind of just lived with me for the last few months is the first chapter of Ephesians. It's a chapter sort of divided into two halves. Paul, in the first half, he gives a long list of all the things that we have in Christ. He says things like this. He says, uh, he says that we have been chosen before the creation of the world. That the creator of the heavens and the earth chose you before he created the heavens and the earth. He says that we've been adopted as God's children He says that we've been made holy, that we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've received God's grace, we've been let in on the plans and the purposes that God has for creation. It's an incredible list of things that we have in Christ. And then in the second part of that chapter, and actually throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul then seems to break out into spontaneous moments of prayer. And it seems to me that what he prays is that the Ephesian church and us as well, that we might grow in the knowledge and the experience, not of something that we currently lack, 
but of what we already have. Paul's prayer for us, I think, is that we would grow in the knowledge and experience, not of something that we currently lack, but that we grow in the knowledge and the experience of the abundance that we already have in Christ. A few days after this story took place, uh, when I say a few days, I don't know exactly how long, but a short while after this, this story took place, Jesus gathers his disciples together for a final meal. And in John 13 and verse 3, we read these words. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And the story then goes on that Jesus got up from the table, took a basin of water, took something to dry people's feet with, and he knelt before his friends and he washed their feet. And then he celebrated a meal that represented his death. And then he left to Gethsemane, a place where he knew he would be arrested and ultimately crucified. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. James and John already had a throne. They already had a throne. It seems to me that if we want to live that radical life of discipleship, we live it best when we live out of the knowledge of who we truly are and what we truly have in and through Jesus Christ. The second thing I want to say is this, that the road to the throne rarely avoids the cup. The road to the throne rarely avoids the cup. There's a really interesting little phrase here in this story uh, that Matthew tells, where it's this phrase, one on the right and the other on the left. Matthew uses it twice in this this account of of this story. It's only ever used one other time in Matthew's Gospel. In this story, it's used of thrones. The other time that it's used, it's used of crosses. It's used of the two thieves that were crucified, one on his right and one on his left. I don't know whether Matthew did that deliberately, speaking about discipleship, thrones and crosses, I don't know. But I do know that Jesus recognises that the route to the throne will usually pass through the cup. The cup in the Old Testament sometimes depicted joy, but more frequently it depicted judgment. And on the cross we see the justice and the mercy of God perfectly uniting. And it also speaks of suffering When Jesus paints his picture of discipleship, he paints a picture of a man holding a cross, a man carrying his own cross. I'm quite challenged by Paul's words in Philippians 3. He says this, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. We love the first bit of that, don't we? 
I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Well, it was amazing, wasn't it, to hear stories this morning of the power of Jesus' resurrection, his power to heal. I know that I've heard other stories over the last couple of weeks of, of people who have been physically healed, of things that have, um, that have troubled them. For one person I heard a story of today, uh, this week, she'd been in pain for 10 years uh, and, she, and told a story about how she'd been healed. Amazing. We absolutely, we passionately believe, don't we, in the power of the resurrection. We want to absolutely pursue the power of Jesus Christ and of his resurrection to see uh, his kingdom come, people healed, people set free. Absolutely, if there's, if there's something that you would value prayer for this morning, if there's a sickness or an, uh, something wrong that you would love people to pray for, we'd love to pray because we believe in the power of Jesus Christ and of his resurrection. It's a blessing, it's to hear of people's testimonies, isn't it? But you know, it was also a blessing over the last couple of weeks. I don't know how many of you have been doing the prayer course, but it was also a blessing a couple of weeks ago. I sat over here uh, on a Tuesday night with my little group, and what we did was we shared some stories of when it hadn't always worked out quite so well. Actually, we shared some stories of times when prayer hadn't been answered in the way that we hoped it might have been answered. And the reality was that those, those experiences had been, had been very difficult for people. And it felt, I mean, to say it felt good, that's a weird way to say it, but there was something about sitting there and hearing people's stories of, of pain and suffering and people being vulnerable and sharing the reality of life that was also, there was a blessing in that. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. The kingdom of God has a different economy, doesn't it, to the world. It's an upside-down kingdom. It's a kingdom in which the servant and the slave become the greatest. That's the economy of the kingdom. It doesn't make any sense in the world. But it's a kingdom in which the servant and the slave become the greatest. I am... one of the stories, whenever I hear this passage or think about servanthood, I always think about this story, and if you've heard me, I might have told it before, and if I have, I apologise, but I, it's the thing that always comes to mind. It was just a, such a lesson to me. Uh, I was, um, I, Julie and I, we used to lead um, Boulder Gang, which is New Wine's group for 10 and 11-year-olds. And um, because we used to lead that group, um, we, were, we used to go to a prayer meeting uh, at 8 o'clock at New Wine, 8 a.m. in the morning, where the leaders of the different groups would gather together and would just talk about what was going on and, you know, just to kind of communicate. And I remember walking along to that meeting, and it always felt quite nice. To, it was a bit of an honour to be able to go to that meeting because sometimes I had nice coffee and sometimes I even had croissants at that time in the morning. And on the New Wine campsite, that is a blessing, you know. I was walking along to that meeting, and... Um, about 20 yards in front of me was a guy called David Pitchers. David Pitchers um, was the man who began New Wine. Uh, and out of his ministry came New Wine and Soul Survivor and 
renewal to the church, just an incredible ministry that that guy had and still has. And as I was following um, David, he was an elderly guy. I don't, know how old, I don't know how old he is now, but let's say he was definitely in his 70s. I would have thought he might be nearing 80 when, as I was walking behind him. And as I followed him, uh, he was walking along the site. Everyone else is asleep, just a few people up. As he's walking, he's sort of hobbling along. He's got the Daily Telegraph under one arm, because he always does. And every time he walked past a little bit of litter, he'd bend down and he'd pick it up. And it took him quite a while to bend down, because he was quite old. And it wasn't sort of like nice litter. You know, it wasn't like, oh, a copy of yesterday's Telegraph just lying on the floor. It was horrible litter. It was, it was burger wrappers that were covered in kind of grease and ketchup and melted cheese and all kinds of stuff. He was just picking up anything that came across his path, he'd just pick it up. And I followed him for quite a distance. And, and, as, and he ended up with, his, with arms full of just rubbish. And he'd just go hobble over and find a bin and he'd put it all in the bin and then he'd come back onto the road and he'd carry on walking and he'd find another bit and he'd pick it up and just did it the whole way towards this meeting. And I was just watching that. I, was thinking, I, I felt like I could cry because it made me think that's why God could trust him with so much because in his heart, he has the heart of a servant, heart of a slave. It's not, it's not beneath him. The man who deserved more honour than anybody on that campsite, you know, in, in one sense, wasn't beneath him just to kind of stoop down and pick up the, the burger wrapper that others had discarded the night before. I thought, wow, what a lesson. It's a kingdom in which the servant, the diaconoi, and the slave, the doulos, become the greatest and then the final thing I want to say is this no one serves like Jesus no one serves like Jesus if we want a model of servanthood Jesus is the person that we look to and this passage um, finishes with this well known verse just as the son of man oh, sorry, let me start earlier um, so he says you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them not so with you instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Jesus uses this this title here, the Son of Man, it's the title that he most uses for himself. It's such a loaded title because on one level it just means human. He's just the son of a human. But there's also a passage in Daniel chapter 7 where we encounter this person called the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 7, as we read about the Son of Man, we, we discover that, that God has given this person all authority, all power, and the nations flock to this person to offer worship. So this title conjures up both, it's, 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 it's a man, but he's also the son of man of Daniel 7. Christ's full humanity and his full divinity. And yet this son of man, this one who has all power, 
all authority, the one before every nation on earth, one day will bow. He says he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He dies a vicarious death. He dies a death that's on behalf of his creation. He lives as a servant. He dies as a slave on behalf of his creation so that we might know life in all of its fullness. No one served like Jesus served. As we approach Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, the silence of Easter Saturday, and the glory of Easter Sunday, we see again that nobody served like Jesus. He is our model. He is our example. And so I guess, you know, may we as a church, may we as individuals, may we live in the knowledge of what we already have in Christ. May we share in the power of his resurrection. And may we also be willing to share in the reality of his suffering. And may we live as servants and slaves that we might see our community transformed for his glory. Shall we stand together?